Hey, good morning, New Hope. Thanks again for joining us in, in your homes, wherever you might be watching. We're grateful that we can uh, join together virtually and, and worship together as a church. Wanted to give you a, a quick update. Uh, I shared about Jeannie Schmidt last week and asked for prayer. Jeannie uh, passed away actually on Easter Sunday, which which is is fitting for uh, for someone who was such a faithful follower like like Jeannie. Uh, we grieve with the family. We lament. We cry, as, as I talked about last week. That's totally fitting in the face of death because we miss Jeannie. But she is with the Lord, and we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Jeannie, more than any of the rest of us right now, knows that he is risen indeed. Let me just say a quick prayer uh, for the Schmidt family. God, uh, just pray that your spirit would be upon Jerry and Mindy and Jay and, and their families, that you'd surround them and protect them and love them. Uh, be close to them, help them to feel your presence in a very tangible way, and help uh, those of us who are part of their lives to rise up in whatever way we can uh, to be their support in this season. Uh, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with our uh, scripture reading today. Uh, we're starting a new series in the book of Philippians, so uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be reading the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I've been noticing on social media uh, a lot of my friends are, are doing this challenge to list 10 things uh, that that people like, but they don't like. So maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you aren't. So I thought I'd, I'd give you a few of those uh, from me, things that other people like, but I don't like. So I don't like adding anything to my coffee. I think coffee should be drank just as the good Lord intended it, strong and black. There's a chart that's gonna pop up on your screen here. Maybe you could have a little interactive uh, thing at home if you're watching with other people. Post on Facebook Live, which one do you prefer when you make coffee or drink coffee? And kids, if you don't drink coffee yet, you could start this morning. Just ask your parents. Mine is 6F, strong and black. If you don't also say 6F, I don't know, you've kind of lost your, your way in life. Coffee, you shouldn't add sugar or creamer or, God forbid, flavored creamer to it. If you, if you do do that, don't call it coffee. It's the drink formerly known as coffee. I don't like swimming pools. 
they're just basically a hole in the ground with, with chemically laced water where people pee occasionally. It's gross, and, and I don't know if I'm the only one that, that thinks that way, but I, I don't like swimming pools. I don't like uh, the, the beetles. <laughs> I know that, I'm sure like, people are freaking out right now. I know they, they supposedly transformed music. Big deal. Good for them. Uh, I can't think of the last time I wanted to, to listen to the Beatles. I don't like weather over 79 degrees. You walk outside, you start to sweat, your skin gets scorched. It's just uncomfortable. Jesus, when he was using figurative language to talk about what it was like to be separated from God, he used heat. <laughs> just, just, just saying. I don't like pineapples on pizza. I don't think fruit should be on pizza at all. It's, it's, it's actually really gross. I don't like, and this is going to cause people great alarm, the Star Wars franchise. <laughs> I know, I know. A lot of you watch it as kids, and you got that unique bonding. But if you really step back, the movies aren't that great. Let's just be honest. And Star Trek, too. I know I'm losing tons of friends today. Finally, I don't like not making my bed. Did you know only... 27% of people make their bed in the morning. It's unbelievable to me. I make my bed every single morning. As someone said, the state of your bed is the state of your head. I think that that's truthful. So it takes like two minutes. Studies show that people that make their bed every morning are in better shape. Uh, they enjoy their jobs more. They get better sleep and they're happier. So just people, make your bed. It takes 66 days in a row of doing something to create a new habit, so you got time. Those are just a few things that other people like that I, I don't like. And what these things reveal is my mindset, the way I think about things, the way I, I see the world. And our mindsets, you have them too. You probably disagreed with a number of my mindsets. Our mindsets shape how we live. And if you've been living very long on this earth, you know that sometimes your mindset collides with someone else's mindset. It is disorienting, isn't it? I'll meet somebody who likes pineapple on their pizza, and I'm just like, what? I can't believe it. I don't understand. And our mindsets collide, often leading to conflict. Another thing I've learned in life is that it's really difficult to change your mindset or to change someone else's mindset. Have you tried that? And science has, has proven why this is so difficult. Brain studies, which I think are fascinating, they can uh, see when our brain lights up and when it activates. And the part of our brain that brings in new information and ponders it and implements it into, into our thinking, they did this test that when you hear from someone else and they're agreeing with your mindset, your brain's, that part of your brain is just lighting up. You're like, yes, 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 that's true, that's right. But when you encounter someone that has a different mindset than you, that part of your brain, nothing, barrier, turn it off. You're not going to hear any of it. Mindsets are super, super hard to change. We're going to talk about that today. We're uh, starting, as I said earlier, into a new series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. It will be a six-week series, so we're kicking it, it off today. Uh, we are going to be using throughout the series a book by my friend, Dr. Uh, Nijay Gupta. He's a uh, theologian. He was at Portland Seminary. He's just starting a new position at, at Northern Seminary. Uh, he's a friend of mine, lives right here in Portland. I think he's brilliant. He, he's a public theologian. He's one of the young up-and-coming minds in Christendom. 
And, my, and he's written a book called Reading Philippians. He's a Philippian scholar. And it's written for people like you that are watching this to kind of read along and help you understand what Paul's saying in the letter. I'm going to be using it a lot. It's going to influence a lot of what I'll say. And I just want to encourage you to go ahead and purchase this book. I use Kindle. You can find it. It's readily available on Amazon and other sites. Go ahead and purchase it and read along, study along, especially if you're doing life group stuff with Zoom or however you're doing that. It will deepen your experience in this book. And at some, uh, some point in the series, maybe a couple weeks out, just a teaser, uh, but Nijay and I are going to get together in a virtual format, and we're going to take your questions, and we'll respond to those. So watch out. That's coming. Uh, so let's, uh, let's dive into the book. Uh, Paul, it, this is the central, one of the central ideas of the book, is trying to change our minds. And Paul wants to change our minds so he can change how we live. Paul wants to introduce us to a, a new way of living. So we'll unpack that a little bit this morning. Here's, uh, here's some context for the book. Uh, Paul is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's doing this deal. He's ministering. He's planting churches. And Paul has a, a, a dream or a vision in the middle of the night. And a man from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece in Europe, appears to him and asks Paul to come bring him the gospel. Well, Paul had been struggling in Asia Minor, kind of hit a wall with ministry, and so he, he takes this as a word from the Lord. So he takes off with his friend Silas, maybe Luke's with them, we're not sure, and they head off to Europe. This will be the first time Paul's entering Europe with, with church planning on his mind. Uh, they roll into a port city, and then they walk 12 miles to the ancient city of Philippi, and it's a super ancient city, hundreds of years B.C. in the past, like 358 B.C. It got renamed after the, the father of Alexander the great Philippi. Then it became a Roman colony, so it's a very Romanized city. It's uh, on a major travel route. It's multicultural, uh, a melting pot. There's tons of different religions and faith. We found at least 35 gods that were worshipped in the city of Philippi. So as Paul, as was his custom, Paul came into Philippi, and the first place he went was to the uh, the the tabernacle or uh, the temple area where the Jewish people would hang out and worship. And because he was looking for, for Jewish people that would understand the story of scripture and then he wanted to tell them how Jesus fit into that story. So he found a group of women praying. One of these women was named Lydia. And Lydia heard the gospel, understood how Jesus fit into the story, responds, and Lydia's entire household was baptized. So we know from uh, Luke's book, Acts, that chronicles the early uh, goings-on of the church that Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They're walking through the markets, preaching, doing life, and a slave girl begins to follow them. The slave girl has an evil spirit that allows her to tell the future, and her masters are making a lot of money off uh, what this evil spirit can do through her. She's taunting Paul and Silas. Really, the evil spirit through her is taunting them. Paul loses it at one point, gets frustrated, and cast out the evil spirit, which was great for the little girl, not great for her masters who are making money. So they take Paul and Silas to the officials. They throw them in jail. And th there's where we have the scene, if you, if you remember, where Paul and Silas are singing in jail, and they're praising God, and then an earthquake happens, and they can run free. But they don't. They stay because they don't want the jailer to get in trouble. And then they tell the gospel to the jailer. The jailer becomes a follower of Jesus. So this church in Philippi started with a Jewish woman, a formerly possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer. It doesn't take much for God to get a church 
going. So the church gets up and going. Uh, Paul and Silas agree with the officials that because of all the the drama they've caused in the city that they will leave. And so they head off uh, to another place to, to plant a church. And so that was when they came to Philippi, we think it was about A.D. 49. So fast forward maybe 13 years, and we have the writing of this letter. Most scholars think that Paul is near the end of his life, that he is in a Roman jail or prison awaiting potential death. Paul has a sense as he's writing that his, his time is short. You feel that. You'll sense that in the writing. And he's writing to this dear church. There may be now a couple house churches of 20 or 30 people, mainly working class, maybe a few affluent folks, maybe some Roman soldiers all mixed together trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in this melting pot of a city. And so the apostle that they've long supported is writing to them. And he's thanking them. They've sent some money and some gifts uh, through, through, through a friend. Paul's received those gifts. And he's, he's writing to thank them, but he's writing to do so much more. Paul wants to change their minds. He wants to change your mind. He wants to change my mind so we can enter into a new way of living. And he starts this right at the beginning. So let's go back to the passage we read. We're in verses 1 through 11. Go ahead and get out your scriptures. Begin to look along with me because I'm going to walk through here for for a couple minutes and just make uh, some comments about what Paul is doing in the text. Letter writing was very common in the first century, but not the way Paul did it. Letters were usually very short, to the point, just basic information and updates. Uh, Paul makes his letters are longer, and his point is not just to pass along information, although he does. It's not just for devotional reading, which is how we usually treat them. Paul is writing to change behavior. He's writing, in this case, to change minds that will change behavior, and we see this from the very opening lines. It was typical in first century ancient Near East letters, uh, there was a formula, and so you would, you would, uh, tell the person who you were, and then you'd greet them, and then you would uh, you know, say something nice about them, and maybe give a call out to their God, and maybe say a prayer. Paul follows that really closely, but he, he changes it, and he revolutionizes it to begin from the very get-go to try to change our minds. Paul is co-writing uh, with Timothy. We must remember these are very real people writing to other very real people in a very real world. Uh, But the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. We have to understand what is Paul saying to this church that we can then glean and bring into our lives. So Paul steps into this formula, and he revolutionizes it and transforms it. Let's watch what he does. First line, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This word servants is really the the Greek word for slave. Slavery was very common in first century Greco-Roman world. A large percentage of the world was in slavery. Some of it, a lot of it was chosen. People chose to enter slavery to pay off debt. Some of it was through warfare. You're captured and brought back as a slave. There are other reasons. But slavery was very, very common. And in Philippi, it was a very status-oriented city. So it was kind of like, what have you done? Who do you know? It was all about that. Paul could have, if he wanted to play along with that, given a long resume. He could have called himself the apostle and look at what I've done and all the churches I've planted. And he did not do that at all. He starts, he says, Paul and Timothy, we are slaves of Jesus. And a a slave is someone who is linked to the will of their master. That's their daily calling, what the master wants them to do. So right from the get-go, Paul is letting the, the, the church at Philippi know that he and Timothy and they 
are slaves of Jesus. They are linked to the will of Jesus. There's this vital connection Paul wants us to know from the very first line. That as we follow Jesus, we are vitally connected to him and our life and our mission and how we orient ourselves flows from our relationship uh, with Jesus. So then he goes on and he says, Paul and Timothy, uh, God's slaves are slaves of Christ Jesus. God's holy people in Christ Jesus. This is who he's writing to. God's holy people. This word uh, holy is uh, in the Greek it means to be, to be set apart. I mean, when something's holy, it's precious, it's, it's valuable. So Paul said, you are precious, you are valuable, you are, you are God's holy people. So he's beginning to shift their mindset, because I bet they're a lot like us, and we'll get to this in a little bit, we don't necessarily feel holy. And Paul is orienting their minds in a different way to get them to think differently about themselves. Then it would normally be in the typical Roman world like greetings, that would be the Greek word that you'd use. A very close Greek word is grace, and this is what Paul uses. Instead of greetings, just like, hey, what's up? Paul and Timothy say grace and peace, grace and peace. In every single one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he uses this introduction. Grace and peace, grace and peace. Grace is what makes our relationship possible with God through Jesus. Peace is an effect of that relationship. The word shalom, that we are made right So once again, Paul's reorienting them to who they are. You are God's holy people, and you're holy by grace, and you've been given peace through the work of Jesus. Paul wants to change their mind. He wants to change my mind. He wants to change your mind to introduce us to a new way of living. In verses 3 through 8, Paul introduces us and kind of gives us an inside peek into his mindset. And we see Paul says that I'm grateful Paul says, even though I'm in a Roman jail cell awaiting possible death, I'm joyful at all times. And why is he joyful? Paul's joyful, he says, because Philippian church, and this was true from what we know, they had Paul's back from the very beginning, and they had his back the entire way. They were sending gifts, they were supporting him, they were feeding him, they were taking care of his needs, they were praying for him. And Paul says, what, the good work that God began in you will continue. And we'll talk about that some next week. That's a, that's a big theme of Philippians, uh, the way my friend Nijay says it, God's unstoppable gospel that is at work in all of us. So Paul's giving us a picture of his own mindset. Here he is, he's in a Roman jail, he's awaiting death, and yet he's thankful and he's joyful and he's hopeful. And then in verses seven and eight, if you're looking down there, you just see deeply affectionate words. This is a pastor talking to a church the way a pastor should talk to a church, that, that he, he loves them. He deeply loves them. And then he does what pastors should pray for the, do for their churches. He prays for them. And this is typical in Paul's letters. And the heart of Paul's prayer is basically that they would love more. He's saying, you're loving. I got your gift. You're a loving people. I see that in your life. My challenge to you, and maybe this is the last time you'll hear from me, Paul, but my challenge to you, Paul says, my prayer for you is that you would love more. And then he uses two words that talk about the mind, knowledge, and deep insight. And he, he introduces us to this idea that the pathway to loving is through learning. And we'll, we'll break that down and explore that in a little bit. And then finally, Paul says, as you begin to think differently, as you have a new mindset, your life will bear spiritual 
fruit, the fruit of the Spirit to the glory of God. So what is Paul doing here? You could just read through this, and a lot of times I have in my life, and I've read through, ah, greetings, blah, 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 you know. Right from the get-go, Paul is using the standard letter, and he's transforming it because he wants to change your mind. He wants to change my mind. He wants to change the mind of the followers of Jesus at Philippi to get them to think differently about themselves. He uses this word in the Greek, uh, phrono. He uses it 15 times, as I've shared with you in the past, when you see a writer of scripture repeating something, they're trying to get your attention. 15 times Paul uses this Greek word, phrono, which means to kind of reorient your thoughts in a certain direction. In, in Philippians 2.5, this is a passage we'll look at in two weeks, and it's, it's a central passage in the letter. Paul says, and this kind of sums up the heart of what I'm talking about today, that we would have the same mindset, phrono, of Christ Jesus. He wants us to think like Jesus. And for that, we're going to have to change our mindsets. And if we change our mindsets and we think more like Jesus, it will change our lives. And that's the heart of the letter. If we begin to, to think differently, thinking differently means that we begin to, to live differently. So if, if, I, if I ask you the question, who are you, what would you say? Or if, you, if you're at home and you're not around other people and, and you, you go up to a mirror and you look in the mirror and you just, just ask yourself, maybe it'll be weird, but like, who am I? I think some of the first things that come to our, our mind are, what we do, our vocation, if you've got a career, you know, teacher, doctor, I, I don't know what you might be doing. You might answer that way, or you might answer mom, or dad, or brother, or son, or daughter, or, or grandfather. That's, none of those things are who you are. None of those things are who I am. That's what we do. Those are roles we play, and they're important, but it's not who we are. And Paul's trying to adjust that mindset, and this will be crucial for not only standing this passage, but the entire book. If you ask Paul that question, Paul, who are you? Paul would answer with that word, holy ones, which in some translations, it says saints. That's what the word means. That's how Paul would answer you. If you said, Paul, who am I? He said, you're a saint in the Lord. And it's kind of mind-blowing. The key part of that phrase is the holy ones in the Lord or, or the saints in Christ Jesus is the in Jesus part. These are perhaps the two most important words in all of the New Testament. Paul uses them over 130 times. He's trying to constantly reorient ourselves, that we think of our identity through our, our possessions or our performance or our popularity. That's where we find our status and our standing. And Paul's like, no, that's not who you are. You're vitally linked to Jesus. When we place our faith in Jesus, God begins to see us as he sees his own son. And Paul's phrase for that is we are in Christ, that we possess everything that Jesus possesses and that, that that's a greater identity than anything that we could ever find our identity in here on earth. So Paul's constantly redirecting us that way to give us a different mindset. And it is a mindset. It's so difficult to transition out of thinking of ourselves through our career, or through our performance, or through our popularity, and now thinking of ourselves in Jesus, by grace, giving this, this incredible new status and standing in the Lord. But that's what Paul is doing from the get-go. We trip up because 
because of our Catholic brothers and sisters perhaps and how they go about sainthood. And maybe you're familiar with that, maybe you're not, but there's only a select amount of men and women who have become saints in the Catholic tradition of Christianity. And it takes a lot. You gotta, you gotta be nominated, you gotta be dead for five years, and then, uh, then they exhaustively research your life. How would you like that? Every piece of dirty laundry, every skeleton, I'd, uh, my, my research would last like five minutes. They'd be like, he's, he's out, he's not a saint. And then uh, th- you have to be shown that your heroic in virtue, that's, that's just a, whew, that's not me, heroic in virtue. And then like after your death, you have to have at least two miracles attributed to people praying to you after you, after you died. There's no way that I would make it. But that, that's how a lot of us think about sainthood. When Paul's writing to another church, the church at Corinth, he starts the same way. He calls them saints in the Lord. And then quickly he gets into calling them out on some sins that, even people from outside the church were horrified at. So we know that our sainthood is not dependent on what we do or what we don't do. That our sainthood is is wholly dependent on the work of Jesus. That we are holy ones in the Lord. And that it doesn't come from what, what we have done or haven't done, that it is a gift of grace. So when Paul's trying to change our mindset, when he's trying to get us to think differently, we have to start by thinking differently about ourselves. That is the foundational first step, and that's why he addresses it in the introduction. Years ago, I had a mentor, and this mentor uh, told me this very simple fable. And the fable has, has always stayed with me. And it was a, it was a fable about a baby eagle. Uh, the baby eagle's parents tragically died. I don't know how. Uh, the baby eagle was left alone, the baby eagle fell out of its nest, and a chicken farmer found the baby eagle. So the chicken farmer takes the little baby eagle back to the chicken coop, and the baby eagle is raised as a chicken. So fast forward, the baby eagle is now grown, and it's this large eagle, but acting exactly like the other chickens, just pecking around all day in the dirt for grubs. And one day, the, the, the baby eagle looks, or not the, the adult eagle now, looks up into the sky and sees another adult eagle soaring, which is an amazing picture, soaring through the sky. And the, and the eagle turns to the chicken and says, what is that majestic creature? And the chickens say, ah, don't worry about it. That'll never be you. Just get back to pecking in the dirt. And the baby, or the eagle did. It's a very simple parable, but it's profound because I see this kind of thing in my life. In due respect, I see it in your life. I think Paul saw it in the lives of the Philippian believers that we're given a new status, a new standing in Jesus, that we are saints, that we are holy ones. Paul later calls the Philippians a church, and he uses this term a lot in the New Testament. That, that word means called out ones. We're called out to a, a greater a greater story, a greater way of living. And yet, so many of us, myself included, spend our days picking around in the dirt. I shared last week how I, I've loved reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia with my daughters. Another book that I've loved to read is, is J.R.R. Tolkien's the, the Hobbit. And so, you know, read that with the girls, loved it growing up. My favorite chapter of The Hobbit is the first chapter. It's called An Unexpected Party. And if you've seen The Hobbit, uh, Peter Jackson's uh, trilogy of movies, or you've read the book, you're, you're going to probably remember it. But good old Bilbo, he's in the Shire. Bilbo's life is basically, he gets out of bed, he eats, 
and then he takes a nap, and then he reads, and then he eats again, and then he smokes his pipe, and then he eats again, and then he reads. I mean, that's basically his life. You, you see that, you're like, this is incredible. And it was an incredible life. Well, Bilbo gets this unexpected party. So Gandalf shows up, and Bilbo, Bilbo's already thrown, like, what's happening? And then all the dwarves start coming in. And as, as the scene unfolds, Gandalf, and, and Bilbo picks this up, Gandalf tells Bilbo that he's been called to something, that he has, he's been set apart, that, that there's something greater that he is meant to do with his life. But Bilbo is super content with his life. And it's a tension, and you feel the tension. I was, we were watching the movie with our family, the first one of Peter Jackson's uh, movies on The Hobbit, and this scene, they did just such a marvelous job with it. So I'm watching the scene, I'm reliving, I'm remembering reading it as a kid and then to, to our girls. And there's that scene where Gandalf's calling forth Bilbo, he's calling him to something greater, he's leaning in, and Bilbo makes the decision to stay. And the minute he did, I felt tremendous grief. Even though I knew where the story went, I knew that he changed his mind, I felt tremendous grief for him at what he was giving up, that he didn't see who he really was. He was called to something so much greater, and I had to think this was pounding in Pastor Hart, Paul's heart as he's writing to the Philippian church, as even his heart would be pounding for you and I. They were called to something greater. And then the next morning, Bilbo gets up, and, and everyone's gone, and he freaks out, and in that split second, Bilbo packs his bag, and he makes the decision to go, and he makes the decision to believe that he's not just a hobbit, that he's something greater. And there's that last pensive look he takes as he looks back at, 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 at his home and kind of with sadness, and then he closes the door and he goes running off. And when I, when I watch that scene, I begin to weep. I told you last week I, I, I cry all the time now, and I'm just like, what am I doing? I'm crying at the opening scene of The Hobbit. This is ridiculous. But I think it evokes something deep in me, something deep at points in my life where I haven't chosen to believe that I was who God said I was. And I think that's very much what is going on here. We have to begin to think differently about ourselves. And we begin to think differently, we begin to live differently. And that process starts with ourselves. We've got to think differently about ourselves. If we begin to think differently about ourselves, then Paul says in this prayer, he suggests that it bears fruit uh, the, I would say the fruit of the Spirit is what he is getting at. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all, all those fruits. So back, if you still have the text in front of you, uh, if not, go ahead and pull it back out. Paul mentions in this, this opening 11 verses, he mentions two fruits. And I think he does it purposely to call our attention to it. If we begin to think differently, we will begin to live differently. Thinking differently means living differently. And it will bear fruit in our lives. Our lives will look different. They will change. And he mentions two fruits. Go ahead and call it out if you're at home. If you see those, put it in Facebook Live. Two of the fruits, you could just guess. I mean, you'd have a good, good chance. There's not that many of them. Two fruits. The fruits that were mentioned were joy and love. Let's talk briefly about each of these. If we begin to think differently about ourselves, if our mindset shifts, if we see ourselves as God sees us, that we are set apart in Christ, holy ones that were saints, that were called out to this radical way of living, our lives will shift, we'll begin to change, and we'll begin to bear this fruit. And you will see this kind of fruit as our lives shift. So let's talk about joy. Paul, uh, this, 
Philippians is the most joyful book in the Bible. It's not even close. The Greek words for joy and rejoicing are used 16 times in 104 verses. Paul mentions joy in every single uh, chapter. So as you begin to read through it, as you begin to study it, look for these words joy and rejoicing. A a verse you may know, if you know any verses from Philippians, you may know this one. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. See if you can finish it. And again I say rejoice. He mentions it twice. In our passage, verses 1 through 11, Paul makes one mention of it, but I think he does it very intentionally. He says, Philippians, I always pray with joy. Where's Paul? Paul's in prison. (laughs) Not pretty, Roman prison. Paul's most likely awaiting death. But Paul says, right now, I'm always filled with joy. That's that's disorienting to us. So we gotta also think differently. We have a certain mindset about joy. Paul wants us to think differently about joy, and he's gonna spend the letter kind of deconstructing and rebuilding what joy is. If you just Google joy, the first definition that will likely pop up are feelings of pleasure and happiness. And yeah, that's a piece of joy, but a very, very small piece. That is not, that's not biblical joy. The biggest misconception about joy is that joy must occur apart from suffering. The idea that we can be joyous in the midst of suffering is is hard for most of us to understand, and yet that's the way the scripture's presented again and again and again and again. A little later in this letter, in chapter two, Paul writes that even if he is being poured out like a drink offering on their behalf, even if I give my life, Paul says, that he is glad and rejoices. He's doubly joyous. What is that? And then going back to this this thing he wants us to develop, this new mindset, the mind of Christ. When we think about Jesus, there's this wonderful verse about Jesus and his mindset in Hebrews 12 too. And it says, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. There, there's, this, there's this relationship between joy and suffering in Scripture, like they work in tandem. They don't have to exist as opposites. In Scripture, they actually work together. Uh, Nije, my friend that I've been talking about, as we're, as we're discussing Philippians, and we have a lot of uh, lunches and conversations about theology, and this was one of them. He said, John, as you teach the book, and the word joy comes up, I challenge you to come up with a different word or a different phrase for joy because the English word joy just doesn't convey what the biblical writers are trying to convey. So I took that challenge. I don't know if this is sufficient, but I spent a lot of time thinking about it and processing, and this is what I came up with. I think joy, and I, and I couldn't do it in one word. I came up with two words. I think biblical joy is boundless satisfaction. Boundless satisfaction. I love the word satisfaction. The, the Latin root of that word means content, and there's a deep contentment. There's a pervasive sense with joy that, that all is well, and that word to satisfy means to be paid in full, so that points us to what, what gives us joy, the finished work of Jesus, and then yet joy is boundless. Joy is not, biblical joy is not bound up by circumstances. Joy doesn't change whether things are good or bad. Joy exists and is tethered to our relationship with Jesus. It springs from the status and the standing that we have with Jesus that is unchanging regardless of the circumstances around us. Let's go back to that phrase, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Paul's using those, that, that, that two-word uh, descriptor again, in the Lord or in Christ. Rejoice in Jesus. 
He's not saying, and this is how we could misread it, that Jesus is kind of out there as this heroic figure and like, we rejoice, yay, we love Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying our joy as followers of Jesus actually comes from being in Jesus. Our status, our standing, our identity flows from what he has freely given us that will never change, regardless of circumstances. One writer uh, writes that because of the work of Jesus, those of us who, who follow him have joy in our blood. We have joy in our blood. When I was thinking about who do I know that's joyous, my, my friend Luis Palau uh, came to mind almost instantly, and I was able to interview Luis at in New Hope last year. Many of you know Luis. If you don't, just Google him and read on Wikipedia. He's a remarkable uh, human and follower of Jesus. He's preached to millions and led tens of thousands to Jesus. Uh, knew Billy Graham, worked with presidents. Um, but yeah, he, he's my friend too, and I've had the privilege of getting to know him. When I first got to know him five years ago, Luis was the embodiment of joy. He has, even though he's, he's getting into his elder years, he has this childlike demeanor and this twinkle in his eye, especially as he talks about Jesus. It's so contagious. And then Luis, about uh, two years ago, got diagnosed with, with terminal, uh, aggressive stage four lung cancer. Praise God he's still with us and that God's been gracious and sustained him and, and he's seemingly doing well. Please continue to pray for him. But post-diagnosis, through chemo, through last week when I'm on a Zoom call with Luis, he's unchanged. Totally unchanged. Last week on the call, he's telling us stories about God working across the globe. He's bouncing in his chair and his eyes are twinkling as he often does. And I appreciate this about him because as I shared last week, this is happening to me. He begins to weep tears of joy. And I thought about Luis when I was watching him and just how he carries himself. And this is another way I'd kind of describe joy as a soul giggle. It's a soul giggle. And he's so satisfied. He's got this boundless satisfaction in Jesus and who he is in Jesus. He's God's child and victory is won and all's good even though all's not good horizontally on this earth. It's all good with him and the Lord and all will be well, and that is the source of his joy. So as we change our mindset, as we begin to think differently, we see ourselves differently, we live differently. One of those fruits is joy, and the other is, is love. This is what Paul prays for, that you would love more, that I would love more, that the followers of Jesus in Philippi would love more, but once again, we have to think differently about love. We have this mindset about love that love is an emotion, and love can be emotional, but biblical love is not an emotion. The primary word biblical authors use for love, and it's used in this prayer, when Paul says that we would love more, he wants to, us to agape more. And this word is not an emotion, it is an action. It is sacrificial, self-giving love. And as I mentioned at the top of the message, Paul uses these two words about thinking that we have to like learn to love. You can't really learn an emotion, but you can learn an action. And Paul's challenging them like you're lovers, you're already loving well. I challenge you and I pray for you to love more. And Paul's saying as you begin to think of yourself differently as those holy, as saints set apart, called out for so much greater than you know, you will begin to love more. Frederick Beekner is, is perhaps my favorite writer, and Beekner says it like this. In the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion, but an act of the will. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, he's not telling us to love them in the sense of responding to them with a cozy emotional feeling. On the contrary, 
He is telling us to love our neighbors in the sense of being willing to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that end. Even if it means sometimes just leaving them alone. Isn't that awesome? He wrote this decades before the the coronavirus. Thus, in Jesus' terms, we can love our neighbors without necessarily liking them. This does not mean that liking may not be a part of loving, only that it doesn't have to be. Sometimes liking follows on the heels of loving. Beekner knows, as he said, that love is not an emotion. Love is an action. Paul wants us, he wants the Philippian church to love more. Or as one translator said, to live a lover's life. What does this look like? I came across this remarkable photo that's going to come up on your screen, hopefully. And it's a group of doctors and medical professionals from Atlanta I think this was a week or so ago, flying to New York City to voluntarily serve. How about that? How incredible is that? And again, as an aside, can we just give it up? Just go ahead on Facebook. Just thank all our medical professionals. Please be praying for them. They are our heroes on the front lines. These folks in Atlanta, which is not an epicenter right now, flew into the epicenter of this pandemic globally, which is New York City right now. And they chose to do it because of love. And if you see in the photo, they're doing the love sign. See, it'd be one thing if they were at home in, 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 in Atlanta on their couches doing the love sign saying, hey, we're with you. That's not really love. That's, that's the theory of love. Love is what they're doing. Love is getting on a plane, leaving their friends and family, leaving safety to go put others before themselves. What does this look like for me? What does this look like for you? It's weird times. It's odd times. It's hard times. But I really deeply believe more than ever followers of Jesus will have opportunities now and increasing opportunities to live a lover's life, to love more. And I think that will be greatly unleashed when we begin to think of ourselves differently as those who are holy and saints and set apart by God's grace and mercy and called out to a greater way of living. What is that gonna look like for you this week? Maybe you you live in isolation and you're gonna have to get creative Maybe you you live with a group of people. Then perhaps it's easier. Sometimes the people closest to us are the hardest to love. What would it look like to do a chore for for a family member or for someone you live with, to put them first? What does it look like to serve our neighbors in this time period? Could you mow somebody's grass? Could you leave flowers for somebody? I don't know. I mean, we're creative people. What does it look like to, to give our lives away? And that's really the heart of love. For many of us, it's staying at home, and I commend you. Please continue to do that. It's amazing. It's hard. It's heroic in and of itself. We're loving in that way, but even as we're keeping distance, there are ways to love. Maybe the next time you're at the store, you can text a bunch of friends, what can I get for you? Uh, Maybe, and here's like maybe the pinnacle of right now, you could give away some toilet paper. (laughs) There you go. I better probably need some in a few weeks, so set set some aside for, for the Rosen Seals. I want to challenge you uh, this week uh, as you get up and maybe, maybe you forgot this message by Monday or Tuesday or whatever, but I, hopefully at some point you'll remember it. And I want you to go into the bathroom, I know it'll be weird, and look into the mirror and say, who am I? What's your, what's your mindset about yourself? Do that work. It's hard. It's a hard question. Who am I? How, how do we see ourselves? I, I'm probably not going to... Uh, change your mind about whether you put creamer or sugar in your coffee or pineapple on your pizza or about the Beatles. 
Uh, I hope I change your mind about making your bed, because you should do that, but I probably won't, because mindsets are hard to change. They're, they're really difficult to change. But I hope, uh, by God's grace, through the power of this letter, that, that I can change your mind, that Paul can change your mind, that the Spirit of God could change our minds, that we could begin to see ourselves as God sees us. Saints, holy ones, set apart, called out to a greater way of living, the hands and feet of Jesus. And as we begin to change our mindset about who we are, we begin to choose joy and we begin to learn to love. And as we begin to do those things, our brains actually change. Scientists will tell you that. New pathways form. Your brain physically changes. You develop a new mindset. And remarkably, it's the mindset of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much uh, for the opening of this letter. I'm super excited to unpack it, to to journey with our church through it. Uh, There's so many treasures and gifts and things that, as a follower of Jesus, I need to to, to grow in and to, to have my heart expanded and pushed and reshaped and reformed and and probably most importantly, our, our minds reshaped and reformed. Our mindsets, it's hard, God. You know that. We're stubborn people. I'm a stubborn man. It's difficult to see things differently. It's difficult to see ourselves differently. And yet that's so absolutely foundational to a new way of living. So have grace and mercy on us, God. Help us to step out of the, the ways that we've been seeing ourselves and to step in and begin to see ourselves as you see us. And may that unleash a new way of living, a life of chosen joy, a life of learning to love, a life that looks more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray all this in in his name and for your glory, Father. And all God's people said,